Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 20 of They Walk Among Us podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part two of a two-part story. Please listen to season two, episode 19 for more details on this case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. In 1951, Alan Turing was out Christmas shopping when he locked eyes with a young man outside the Regal Cinema on Oxford Street in Manchester, only a few minutes away from Victoria University where he worked. The two began chatting, and as they were both at a loose end, they had lunch. After their meal, Alan asked the young man, named Arnold Murray, if he would like to come and visit him at his home in Winslow over the weekend. Arnold agreed but when the weekend arrived, he never turned up. Though disappointed, Alan thought nothing more of it, but fate had other plans. A week later, whilst on Oxford Street, Alan again bumped into Arnold. Arnold apologised, providing a rather weak excuse, but he charmed Alan who invited him back to Holly Mead, and Arnold stayed late into the night. The pair agreed to meet in the new year, and they began writing to each other. After another night together at Holly Mead, Alan discovered that Arnold was struggling financially, so offered him payment for his company, but Arnold refused. Alan was surprised by the reaction, until he realised the next day that some money was missing from his wallet. Disappointed, Alan wrote to Arnold and explained that he no longer wished to continue with their relationship. 
Expecting the fling to be over, he was surprised to see Arnold at his front door less than a week later demanding to know what he had done to be rejected. The two began conversing, and although Arnold insisted that he didn't steal any money, he made it clear he was finding it hard to make ends meet. Over the period of the next few weeks, the same scenario played out. Arnold would arrive at Holly Mead complaining that Alan never trusted him, but he would always end up leaving in a better financial position. On January 23, 1952, Alan returned home to find his property had been burgled. The items stolen included an open bottle of sherry, a compass, a set of knives and some clothing amounting to a cost of approximately £50. Alan notified the police who arrived shortly after to discuss the burglary and dust for fingerprints. Unsure of his lover's involvement and on the advice of his solicitor, Alan again wrote to Arnold explaining that regardless of who was ultimately to blame, money had come between them and it was thought best they should no longer see each other. On February 2nd, Arnold turned up on Alan's doorstep protesting his innocence. At one point Arnold even threatened Alan that he would go to the police and tell them about their relationship, but as their argument came to a close, he realised that no one would believe him due to his social status. Arnold insisted that he had nothing to do with the theft, but he admitted that he had spoken of his relationship with Alan to a young friend of his, who was recently discharged from the Navy. The 20-year-old, known simply as Harry, had apparently suggested that both he and Arnold break into Alan's home, but Arnold refused. Arnold believed that his friend carried out the burglary and suggested that he would try and find him to recover the stolen items. Alan was still undecided as to whether or not he believed his young lover's story, but his feelings got the better of him and any reservations he had were briefly put to bed after the two spent the evening drinking and Arnold stayed the night. The following day, Alan went to the police station and passed on details of this new suspect, fabricating how he came to learn of their involvement. Although Alan believed he was giving detectives a new piece of the puzzle for their investigation, Police were well aware of this mystery man as they had found Harry's fingerprints at the scene and he was already in a jail cell on another charge of burglary. During Harry's interrogation, he mentioned that he'd spoken to Arnold Murray about his relationship with Alan Turing, so believed him to be fair game given Alan's sexual preference. This prompted the police to again arrive at Holly Mead, asking Alan about the burglary. Pressing Alan further, one of the detectives said, why are you lying? Rather than continue with his charade, Alan provided the police with the truth, detailing his relationship with Arnold Murray. Alan Turing was of the belief that homosexuality would shortly be decriminalised, as there was a Royal Commission sitting to legalise the act. This wasn't the case. He was arrested, and his photograph and fingerprints were taken. Alan was facing a charge of gross indecency contrary to Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 and could be sent to prison for up to two years. Police seized all correspondence between Alan and Arnold which gave them all the evidence they needed to confirm the two were having a sexual relationship. 
Three weeks later, the pair were brought before Winslow Magistrates Court and would face criminal proceedings at the end of February 1952. Allen's solicitor did not argue the charges and he was released on bail for £50. Arnold was not so lucky and was held in custody until the trial. With a court case pending and not wishing for his loved ones to find out what had happened in a national newspaper, Alan wrote to his family. In one of the letters sent to his brother John in Guildford, Alan began, I suppose you know I am a homosexual. Alan went on to describe how the events unfolded but explained that he would be mounting a defence and pleading not guilty. Although his brother was unaware of Alan's sexual orientation, it mattered little. John rushed to his brother's aid, consulting with the solicitor and ultimately trying to convince his brother that by pleading guilty, it would mean the trial would be over quickly and quietly. John also suggested that Alan come out to his mother. After Alan travelled to Guildford to see her, he felt that she had shown little sympathy towards his situation, so he wrote to his brother to speak of his disappointment and an argument ensued. Alan accused his brother of only thinking of himself throughout the whole ordeal. Alan believed he was being convinced to plead guilty as John was saving face so fewer people would find out that his brother Alan was a homosexual. Alan had also been a fellow at King's College in Cambridge off and on since the early 1930s, but remaining there would be difficult given the situation he found himself in and he thought it would most likely lead to a forced resignation. To Alan's surprise, his fellowship expired on March 13, 1952, so there seemed little reason for him to resign and the college remained an area of support despite his upcoming trial. Although there was no doubt Alan had plenty on his mind, he concentrated on his work, submitting papers for publication and attending conferences. The date of the court case eventually arrived on March 31, 1952 at the quarter sessions in Nutsford. Alan Turing and Arnold Murray were charged with 12 counts of gross indecency from December 17, 1951 to February 2, 1952. Both Alan and Arnold pled guilty to the charges and Alan's defence team did what they could to highlight his good character and a number of colleagues spoke highly of his achievements in the field of mathematics. His OBE was mentioned, though, as Alan was from a higher social class than Arnold, this was a point of contention for Arnold's defence counsel, who believed that Alan should have known better. Alan's lawyers argued that he not be taken away from the critical work he was doing, but asked the court to consider other options rather than prison. Murray was placed on a conditional discharge. Alan Turing was offered a choice. Either go to prison for one year or be placed on probation on the condition he undergo hormonal treatment that would reduce his sexual desires. These injections contain synthetic estrogen, also known as diethylstilbestrol. The drug, first synthesized in 1938, would induce chemical castration but it was later discovered that it caused a variety of serious medical complications which included cancer. Rather than go to prison, he chose probation. The treatment rendered him impotent. It also had a damning effect on his central nervous system and caused waves of depression. 
As Alan now had a criminal record, his security clearance was revoked, so he was unable to continue his work with the government intelligence agency and could no longer visit the United States. By spring of 1953, Alan was still involved in his work and social engagements, and by April his probation ended, along with the removal of an implant that had been placed in his thigh that was dispensing his hormonal treatment. During May, the Manchester University Council voted that Alan was to be appointed as the readership in the theory of computing. The future looked bright for Alan Turing. With his probation behind him, he was free to do as he pleased. Alan's housekeeper entered his home on June 8th, 1954, as she would do most days, and found Alan unresponsive lying on his bed with froth around the corners of his mouth. The authorities were alerted, and a few weeks before his 42nd birthday, he was pronounced dead at the scene. Alan had been in good health, but after a post-mortem was carried out, it identified that he died from cyanide poisoning. A half-eaten apple was discovered next to his body, and it is believed this is how the poison was administered. An inquest into his death was undertaken on July 10th and found that Alan Turing committed suicide. An inquest document read, The poison was self-administered while the balance of his mind was disturbed. A jam jar of cyanide solution was found in the house along with another jar of potassium cyanide. Little was made of his death in the press, and on June 12th, Alan's body was cremated at Woking Crematorium. There has been some speculation that the cyanide-laced apple found half-eaten next to his bed wasn't the method through which Alan Turing ingested the poison, as reportedly the piece of fruit was never tested for the presence of cyanide. Scientific equipment filled a small spare room in his home, which Alan dubbed the Nightmare Room, and there was potential that cyanide was being used in some of his experiments, so he may well have died from the fumes. A pathologist who investigated the death noted the smell of bitter almonds, suggesting there was a significant concentration of the substance in the room. Alan reportedly liked to recreate household materials from scratch with varying degrees of success. Some of his projects included producing weed killer, he had previously attempted to gold plate a piece of cutlery himself. He was said to have been in the process of plating a spoon and required potassium cyanide to complete the activity which he may have ingested accidentally. This was a theory his mother believed as she would often tell him off for not washing his hands after he had conducted his experiments. Further evidence suggesting it may not have been intentional were statements made to the coroner by his friends who explained that he was in good spirits during the days leading up to his death. There was no mention in the inquest that Alan was unhappy, depressed or thinking of ending his life, and he also threw a tea party for his neighbour and young son. Professor Jack Copeland, an author who's written a number of books on Alan Turing's achievements in the field of computing, thinks that the results of the inquest into his death would have been very different today, as he believes the investigation was conducted so poorly, an open verdict would now likely be the preferred position. The professor told the BBC, Turing was hounded, yet he remained cheerful and humorous. The thing is to tell the truth insofar as we know it, and not to speculate. 
In a way we have in modern times been recreating the narrative of Turing's life, we have recreated him as an unhappy young man who committed suicide, but the evidence is not there. The exact circumstances of Turing's death will probably always be unclear. Perhaps we should just shrug our shoulders and focus on Turing's life and extraordinary work. Alan had recently amended his will on February 11th, four months before his body was found. Andrew Hodges, who wrote Alan Turing The Enigma, a biography of the codebreaker's life and achievements, which was first published in 1983, believes that Alan took his own life, however had left the scientific equipment in his property to be deliberately ambiguous, allowing his mother to believe it wasn't suicide. Though it's not possible to calculate the exact number of lives saved during World War II, it is believed that Alan Turing's work cracking the intercepted Nazi communications shortened the Second World War by two years, and on the high end saved somewhere in the region of 14 million lives. But these colossal achievements wouldn't be his only legacy. there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 1952, Alan Turing was charged with gross indecency contrary to Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885, but it wasn't until 1967 that homosexuality was decriminalised in England and Wales through the passing of the Sexual Offences Act. Decriminalisation would follow in Scotland 13 years later, and Ireland a year after that. A report that was produced in 1957, three years in the making and sponsored by the government, explained that outlawing homosexuality impinged upon civil liberties. The report titled Homosexual Offences and Prostitution, also known as the Wolfenden Report, and named after former Vice-Chancellor of Reading University Sir John Wolfenden, said that individual freedom of actions in matters of private morality should be respected by the law and society. Religious conservative, former Procurator General at Glasgow, James Adair, was the only advisor on the committee who had reservations about relaxing the law, as he believed it was condoning or licensing licentiousness. Despite the committee's findings and their recommendation to decriminalise homosexuality, it would be ten years before the law came into effect for any person over the age of 21 but only if the act was undertaken in private. In the late 1970s, another report, this time produced by the Home Office Policy Advisory Committee, requested that the law be changed to lower the age of consent to 18. However, this was rejected as the government believed this would promote homosexuality and it was claimed lead men and women to experiment and subsequently be ostracised by society. In spite of the changes to the law, arrests of gay and bisexual people were still being made, with the number of gay men being arrested increasing substantially. It wouldn't be until 1994 that the age of consent was lowered to 18, and seven years after that it was moved to 16 to bring it in line with heterosexuals. In August 2009, John Graham Cumming, a journalist, writer and computer programmer, set up a petition to demand an apology from the government for the treatment of Alan Turing. The petition was picked up by Pink News, but gained traction after it was mentioned on BBC Radio and in the national press towards the end of the month. It was at one point receiving well over 30,000 signatures a day, and in September of that year, Gordon Brown, Prime Minister at the time, issued an apology. It read, This has been a year of deep reflection a chance for Britain as a nation to commemorate the profound debts we owe to those who came before. A unique combination of anniversaries and events have stirred in us that sense of pride and gratitude that characterised the British experience. Earlier this year, I stood with President Sarkozy and Obama to honour the service and the sacrifice of the heroes who stormed the beaches of Normandy 65 years ago. And just last week we marked the 70 years which have passed since the British government declared its willingness to take up arms against fascism and declared the outbreak of the Second World War. So I am both pleased and proud that thanks to a coalition of computer scientists, historians and LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender activists, 
we have this year a chance to mark and celebrate another contribution to Britain's fight against the darkness of dictatorship, that of codebreaker Alan Turing. Turing was quite a brilliant mathematician, most famous for his work on breaking the German Enigma codes. It is no exaggeration to say that without his outstanding contribution, the history of the Second World War could have been very different. He truly was one of those individuals we can point to whose unique contribution helped turn the tide of war. The debt of gratitude he is owed makes it all the more horrifying, therefore, that he was treated so inhumanely. In 1952, he was convicted of gross indecency, in effect tried for being gay. His sentence, and he was faced with the miserable choice of this or prison, was chemical castration by a series of injections of female hormones. He took his own life just two years later. Thousands of people have come together to demand justice for Alan Turing and recognition of the appalling way he was treated. While Turing was dealt with under the law of the time and we can't put the clock back, his treatment was of course utterly unfair and I'm pleased to have the chance to say how deeply sorry I and we all are for what happened to him. Alan and the many thousands of other gay men who were convicted as he was convicted under homophobic laws, were treated terribly. Over the years, millions more lived in fear and conviction. I am proud that those days are gone, and that in the past 12 years, this government has done so much to make life fairer and more equal for our LGBT community. This recognition of Alan's status of one of Britain's most famous victims of homophobia is another step towards equality, long overdue. But even more than that, Alan deserves recognition for his contribution to humankind. For those of us born after 1945 into a Europe which is united, democratic and at peace, it is hard to imagine that our continent was once the theatre of mankind's darkest hour. It is difficult to believe that in living memory people could become so consumed by hate, by anti-Semitism, by homophobia, by xenophobia and other murderous prejudice that the gas chambers and crematoria become a piece of the European landscape as surely as the galleries and universities and concert halls which had marked out the European civilization for hundreds of years. It is thanks to men and women who were totally committed to fighting fascism, people like Alan Turing, that the horrors of the Holocaust and of total war are part of Europe's history and not Europe's present. So on behalf of the British government and all those who live freely thanks to Alan's work, I'm very proud to say we're sorry. You deserve so much better. So where are we now? Nearly three years after the government's apology, former MP John Leach submitted a bill to pardon Alan Turing for his crimes after William Jones began an e-petition in December 2011. John Leach said Alan Turing's persecution by the state for being gay is a scandal that shouldn't be allowed to stand. The former MP continued to submit several bills to the Houses of Parliament and on Christmas Eve 2013 his pardon was signed by the Queen and officially pronounced during the summer of the following year. Though many campaigners were pleased that the pardon had been signed, they felt it hadn't gone far enough as they believed all homosexual men convicted under the law should be exonerated. Around 65,000 men were convicted under the law, and nearly one in four were still alive. 
Both the Conservatives and the Labour Party announced similar policies during 2015 in which they would enact a retroactive pardon. The following year, in June 2016, a proposal called the Sexual Offences Bill of 2016-17 was to be introduced by MP John Nicholson through a private member's bill. This would make provision for the pardoning or otherwise setting aside of cautions and convictions for specified sexual offences that have now been abolished. The debate which took place during October would have expunged the criminal records of those gay men convicted. However, the government, which had plans to address the pardon through amendments of an existing bill, had their MPs talk at length so as to delay a decision being reached in Parliament. One such MP was Sam Jima, who spoke for 25 minutes suggesting it was wrong to automatically pardon all men convicted, as this meant those prosecuted of having sex with someone under the age of 16 would also be pardoned. This process, sometimes known as a filibuster, or talking a bill to death, caused a large amount of upset for those MPs present, some of whom were in tears when discussing a topic very dear to their hearts. The government had already proposed changes to an amendment in the Policing and Crime Bill for 2016, which required those living who wished to be pardoned apply to the Home Office to have the offence removed from their records. However, it would provide a posthumous pardon for those who were convicted but had since passed away. The pardon was signed through an amendment in the Policing and Crime Bill, was written in law on January 31st, 2017, and is informally known as the Alan Turing Law. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. To help support They Walk Among Us, please consider donating at patreon.com forward slash They Walk Among Us. If you enjoyed the show, please also consider leaving a review on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.